was amused, I guess a little bit intrigued, a little bit some other things that I'm not quite sure how to put into words. When I hear people talk about their desire to hear hellfire and brimstone preaching, well, now you know about my response, and you can understand why I would respond that way. I'm not sure what they think it will accomplish. I'm not sure that we really want to go there. I am sure we need to pay attention to what Jesus said about ultimate ends. And really, it's ultimate ends. It's ends that lead to destruction that people are pointing to, hinting at, thinking about when they say, we want to hear hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm not sure it persuades. I do think it frightens. And yes, maybe it gets some people's attention, but that's what Jesus was trying to do in the parable we want to look at today. So hang on, we're going to look at the parable of the barren fig tree and come to grips with what it is that Jesus wants us to know, because it really does matter. And it won't sound like fire and brimstone preaching, but it is a direct statement from Jesus, as direct as he gets, seems to me. Now, he may have some more direct places that seem that way to you, but he's very direct about the consequences of failing to repent. And we want to look at that today. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is. Faith Is is the program where we challenge each other to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because that's the way I've defined faith. Now, it's not the only way to define faith. I know that. You understand that. But it's a very helpful way. When we think about faith, we need to think that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want to encourage you to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and I want you to encourage me, because we need to trust Him. We need to have confidence in Him. We want to, and we will. Well, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we do these programs thanks to the support of the people of our church, and we present them to you in the hope that you will find them helpful. Now, I really mean that I want them to be helpful, and I really hope you like them. But sometimes we have to talk about things that are just straight up straight, uh, that, that are unvarnished, shall we say. Well, you know, we're always careful about how we say it because we want to present the truth. But one of the things we have to be careful about is not to present ourselves or the message of the Bible as anything other than God's Word to us. And we who are pastors, we often like to present ourselves and, and the things we say in a winsome way that helps people listen, that's friendly and accessible. And I want it to be friendly and accessible today. But sometimes, because pastors are both prophets and priests, we have to be direct in a way that people find a little startling. Now, what do I mean when I say we have to be prophets and priests? Well, people like the idea that a pastor would be a priest because a priest typically presents the people to God. And so we like the idea of someone praying for us or talking to God on our behalf, and that's a priestly function. But the Bible also talks about how pastors need to be prophets. 
Now we get a little confused stuff with prophets these days, and I'm not talking about prophets as we might popularly hear them referred to. We are not talking about prophets as we think of them maybe predicting the future. Yes, that all happened, and, and prophets in the scriptures did predict the future. But prophets more often than that proclaimed the word of God to the people. And the people weren't always real happy to hear it for one reason or another. And that's the prophetic function that pastors have today. Now, I'm very fortunate because the people at my church do not object to me telling them the truth from God as I understand it. They know that I do it in order to be helpful, not to be manipulative or coercive or judgmental or harsh or any of those kinds of things, and I deliberately try not to be. But they also know that sometimes we have to be plain about what the Bible says. And so that's what we're going to do today. I heard a, an interesting uh, parallel to that, you might say. I heard, was listening to a, to a gentleman speak earlier this week, and he was talking about a basketball coach he had as he was growing up. He played on basketball teams and apparently enjoyed it. He didn't say whether he was good or not. I assumed that he was, because why wouldn't I assume that? But he remembered one coach in particular that he thought was particularly good and helpful and that he appreciated. And he liked and was struck by one of the things the coach said to the team. The coach said to the team straight up, said, gentlemen, I am not your friend. I am your coach. And this guy that I heard talk about really liked that because he said the, the coach wasn't their friend because he would get on them when they needed to be corrected. He would push them when they needed to be pushed because he was their coach, not their friend. You know, our friends tell us what we want to hear. They're, they're our buddies. They're nice to us, and, and they're reluctant to, to coach us, shall we say. Well, sometimes we who are pastors, we have to be that prophet side of things. And in a little bit, that's what's going on here today, uh, because that's what Jesus did. So we want to look at this parable, this parable of, of the barren fig tree, and we want to try to understand what it is that Jesus is saying and how it will help us in our lives, because it's quite clear on a couple of absolutely significant points, and we must not miss them, and we must not try to talk ourselves out of them or explain them away. We need to straight up hear what Jesus says and then heed what he says and get busy doing what he says. So let's read from Luke chapter 13. This is where we find the parable of the barren fig tree. You may have heard it called other names, but that's the name that, that I typically use. And we want to start with chapter 13 of Luke, verse 1. Now, that's not where the parable begins, but it's important, and I'll explain why as we go on. So let's begin Luke chapter 13, verse 1. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible today. It'll probably be, probably be very much like what you use, maybe not exact, but it's an excellent translation, and I like it a lot. So verse 1, chapter 13 of Luke. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, before we go on, let me say that the he referred to here is Jesus. When it say, says here, some people came and reported to him, the him is Jesus, reported to Jesus, the Galilean, that 
about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Verse 2, and he, Jesus, responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he, and still Jesus speaking, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But, he replied to him, and this is the vineyard worker replying to the owner, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. So that's the beginning of chapter 13 of Luke, the introduction to, and then the parable of the barren fig tree. Now, we begin with a couple of rather interesting stories, and it's reported to Jesus, as it explains here in, in the first verse, that Pilate had apparently killed some Galileans and mixed their blood with sacrifices. We don't know for sure. There's no other historical evidence that helps us here, but the understanding from the text is that these Galileans had gone to offer sacrifices, probably at the temple. That's where they offered sacrifices. And for whatever reason, Pilate had had them killed and their blood mixed with their sacrifices. Now, this is not difficult to believe because Pilate had a reputation of doing atrocious things. So it's entirely understandable that Pilate could have done something this bad. And so, you know, the, the implication is this is a terrible thing. And, um, and what would Jesus say about it? Well, the first thing that, that we should ask and answer as we get into this is this idea of this atrocity that Pilate committed, why did it seem so bad to the people? Why were they so struck by it? Well, the simple answer is that in those days, people thought that calamities like this only happened to the extremely sinful. And so they're saying this to Jesus and looking for Jesus' response and seeing what he might have to say. Now, Jesus' response is um, a question and answer kind of response, or an, in, in part, an if-then response. And, and he's really addressing the idea of were these Galileans more sinful than other Galileans? So in verse 2, Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? Well, the obvious answer was, yes, the people thought that, because that's what they believed in those days. But notice what Jesus says, no, I tell you. And then he goes on with this if-then response, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So notice he says, it's the point here is not about these Galileans and were they more sinful? It's not about Pilate and his nonsense. He always was doing nonsense. The point is, 
if you don't repent, then you will die too. Very strong statement by Jesus, very clear. You repent or you'll die. If you don't repent, then you'll die too. So right off the bat, before we go any further, we should make sure we get this idea that that to Jesus, repentance is important, very important, because he links the failure to repent to death. That's a strong statement. That's straight up true. That's true for you and I. Failure to repent leads to death. No alternatives, no equivocation, just if you don't repent, then you'll die. The good news is, and this is really good news, Jesus is straight with us, so we don't have to wonder. The good news is there's no question here. It's this, and it's flat out this. The other good news is this, and it helps to understand the context of why they thought the way they did and why they would have assumed that these Galileans who suffered this atrocity were extremely sinful. But the point Jesus is making is, no, it's not about their sinfulness, not at all. It's about repentance. And it's not how bad you are, it's what you do about it. It's also not how good you are, because trying to justify ourselves by our goodness is another kind of trap that's just trying to hide our badness. It's not about how bad we are, or maybe only a little bit bad we are. It's what we're going to do about it. That's what matters. And Jesus says, repentance is what we need to do about it. So that's very important in understanding the rest of this passage. And as we get into the parable of the barren fig tree. So then Jesus brings up another atrocity, or maybe we shouldn't say atrocity, but a horrible event that takes place that they were aware of. And he says, to them and talks to them about the Tower of Siloam, how it fell on 18 people and killed them. Now, the Tower of Siloam would have been a place they would have been familiar with, likely built in the southeast section of the Jerusalem Wall. And so Jesus refers to this incident of the tower falling on these people and killing 18 of them, and he, and he uh, raises the, the same question that they talked about earlier in verse four. In verse four. Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? Well, the implication, because we know what they believed, they believed that the more sinful people suffered greater calamities, so that would mean the people who died were more sinful. So Jesus asked that question straight up, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? And verse 5, he says, in answering his own question, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Wow, straight up. You see, this is an example that we might say, was it judgment on these people or was it an accident? They might have thought, was it fate or judgment? And Jesus says, don't overthink. Don't overthink it at all. Just realize that the point of all of this is that you must repent or you will die. Then he goes immediately, or as Luke tells the story, he goes immediately into this parable that we're calling the barren fig tree. And Jesus tells the parable. 
a man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he, the vineyard worker, replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. So now we have this parable that we need to try to understand. And, and in light of the introductory verses, verses one through five, we do get an understanding of it. So in simple terms, the owner of the vineyard comes looking for figs on the tree, and he didn't find any. He would have had every reason to expect them, but no fruit, no figs on the tree. And so he says to the gardener, look, it's been three years, still no fruit. Just cut the tree down. We're, it's taking up space. It's wasting the soil. We should just get rid of it. And for some reason, and we don't know the reason, the scripture doesn't tell us this, the, the gardener or the, the worker in the vineyard, the gardener says, well, just leave it one more year. I'll give it special attention. I'll cultivate it. I'll fertilize it. Maybe with my special care, it will produce fruit. If not, then you can cut it down. Well, it seems like a reasonable request. It seems a little uh, unexpected that the owner would go along with that because three years is a long time to have a tree just growing and not producing. But the owner apparently goes along with that. It's not definitively concluded. The parable just stops and leaves us hanging to make sure we think about it and its implications. It doesn't resolve itself for us or for Jesus' listeners, either one. But that doesn't matter. We can still understand what it's about. And in some respects, when a parable is left that way, it's better for us because it then requires us to work a little harder to understand. And then it keeps us from missing the point because it draws us into the story and says, okay, okay, now, what do you think about this? So let's, let's explain what's going on here a little bit. As I look at this, these verses, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, it seems very clear to me that verses 1 through 5 are an introduction of the parable. They're an introduction, gets us ready for the parable, it sets us up for the parable, and it particularly does that by stressing, and Jesus does it twice with two different incidents, he stresses the importance of repentance. So in verses 1 through 5, we get an introduction with the stress on, hey, folks, pay attention, repentance matters. Repentance matters. Don't miss the point. Repent or die. That's pretty clear. Pretty clear that it matters. Pretty clear choice. Which would you rather do, repent or die? Kind of a rhetorical question he asks, and yes, I did ask that, and sadly, some people would rather die. Don't make that mistake. Then verses six through nine are actually the parable itself that we talked about. Rather short, not long, two paragraphs, most English translations. But here's what the parable does. Now, if, if the introduction sets up the importance of repentance, and it does, then the parable defines repentance. And that's a very important question. When Jesus is making such a big deal out of repentance in the first part, we should make a big deal out of understanding what he means by repentance. And so 
verses six through nine, the parable of the barren fig tree, define what Jesus meant by repentance. Now, in a general sense, when we look at the word repentance, and we all understand this, that repentance means to change. It means a change of heart, or we might say a change of mind, and it implies, no, I guess it more than implies, it defines that change as including a change of behavior. In other words, we, we change our ways. We do differently. So repentance is that, in a general sense, it's, it's a change. Now, a lot of people will talk about repentance, and they begin with saying, well, repentance is being sorry for or regret for the way we've been living. Yes, it might involve that. And certainly when one sees the error of one's ways, then we have a tendency to regret the way we've been and decide, well, we better get it right now. And so regret is part of the, the motivation to change. And so we change our minds or our hearts, and we change our behaviors. We change what we do. Sometimes I talk about repentance as being a U-turn in life. Around here where I live and drive, there's frequent opportunity to make a U-turn more than any place I've ever lived. And a U-turn is a change of direction. It's going, turning around from the way I'm going and going back the other way. And sometimes that's necessary to get where I want to be. And Jesus is saying, that's necessary. That's absolutely necessary for you to get where you need to be. You must change direction. You must change your ways. And so specifically, when it comes to this idea of repentance, the parable teaches that the change is from no fruit to producing fruit. See, fruit, as the parable explains it, is essential to a fig tree. I suppose you could say producing figs is the defining characteristic of a fig tree. So it's expected of fig trees. It's essential for fig trees. And so the parable is reminding us that the repentance that Jesus is talking about is the change that results in producing fruit in our lives. Now, we can talk about what that fruit means. And generally speaking, we can get to that a little bit more in a minute. Generally speaking, that means our actions change. What we do changes. And we do purposeful things that, in the context of the parable, benefit the owner of the tree. And who owns us? Well, the creator, God himself. So we need to produce fruit in our lives that benefit the creator of heaven and earth, that benefit God. So let's keep understanding the parable. So, okay, then who is the message for? Okay, we get the idea of repentance here, and but is it really for us? Well, it's very clear from the way the context of the of the parable occurs in Luke chapter 13, that the message is for the people who listened to Jesus while he was talking to them. Now, sometimes when we interpret these things because of other connections in the scripture, we, we relate fig trees to other things. And in this case, the fig tree might be related to the nation of Israel. And I don't think it's at all inappropriate to say that Jesus cared about Israel, the whole nation. But it's also too limiting to say that this parable is explained or taught simply to appeal to the nation. The nation is made up of people, and for the nation to change, the people needed to repent and to change and produce fruit. So it's clearly intended for the people who were listening, and as it's given to us, it's clearly intended for us, for we are the readers, we are reading it, and we are hearing Jesus' words to us. So we shouldn't try to escape that 
This is intended for us. We shouldn't try to get around that. That's important. Now, when we look a little farther to try to understand the introduction and then the parable, well, then we should deal a little bit with the report about Pilate's atrocity. Clearly, when that report came to Jesus, it was intended to elicit a response from Jesus. And we don't know exactly the response, but probably because it was about Pilate and the Roman behavior, it, they would have been interested in what Jesus might say about the Roman occupation, about Pilate's behaviors, what he did and should do and didn't do. It could also have been about the zealotry activities of Galileans. Maybe they were doing things that Jesus wanted to correct or support. So they were trying to get a response maybe about the Romans, maybe about the zealots. And certainly, because Jesus addresses that, they were trying to get a response to the relationship of catastrophes to sin. Well, Jesus didn't respond as they seemed to have hoped. Instead, he ignored the idea that, that this might be justice or some kind of retribution for the sinfulness of the people. He um, doesn't equal the calamities to greater sinfulness. He, he, does, he rejects that, which would have been their common understanding, but rather he focuses in on, listen, listen, those guys died, but you'll die too if you don't repent. You will face destruction without repentance or absent repentance. So that's really significant that Jesus doesn't take the, the opportunity, you might say, to speak about those other things, but he focuses on a couple of things that were very clear, repentance and death. Now, when we look at, at parables, and, and I love to look at parables, they are they're often described as uh, earthly stories with heavenly meanings, or sometimes people say with heavy meanings. Well, this one certainly has a heavy meaning, there's no doubt about it. And so sometimes we look to see what are the elements of the parable and are they representing people or things we know about? And so we look at this one in the same way to say, okay, what, what might the gardener represent or who might the gardener represent and who might the owner represent and what might the fig tree represent? And, and what about the fruit? Does it represent something specific we need to think about? And we've already, we've already talked about that a little bit, but let's go through it a little bit. Certainly, it's, it's very clear that the fig tree is referring to people. There, there's no question when you look at the, the number of people that weigh in on its, the interpretive ideas here that the fig tree is people. It's you. It's me. Jesus wants us to see ourselves in the fig tree, tree that is not producing fruit. And he wants us to realize that the fig tree is in jeopardy unless it changes. And the fruit that the fig tree is to produce is actions. Jesus wants us to do something to be involved in the kingdom in a way that benefits the Lord of the kingdom, the owner. And so it's a little less clear, but I don't think it's, uh, some people argue that it's less clear. I don't think it's less clear. I think that the owner is clearly representing God. I think that there's no doubt about that because Jesus makes the connection between repentance and death and the fig tree's fruitlessness and death. So clearly the owner is the one who is going to exact digging up or cutting down, I guess we should say, the fig tree. 
So it's pretty clear that, that we answer to God if we aren't fruitful. Now, the, it's a little less certain, but I think you can make a case for, for the gardener representing a number of potential people. Many times people will say, well, the gardener or the vineyard worker represents Jesus. And that's certainly defensible. Jesus was there talking to the people, traveling around, sharing the good news, admonishing people to change their lives and to follow him. And so it clearly fits the pattern of what Jesus was doing, trying to, to bring salvation and rescue from death to the people. So surely Jesus could be the gardener. It's also entirely possible that when we think of this in our day and time, that the gardener could be pastors and teachers, maybe a Sunday school teacher that works with children or adults. It could really be anyone who, who cares for the souls of people around them, because the gardener plays the role of, of standing up and, and appealing for the fig tree to the owner, or appealing to God on behalf of the people, that priestly role that I mentioned earlier, because the gardener cares about that tree. And, and we don't know for sure why he cares about the tree. It doesn't say that, but I guess gardeners care about trees. They don't want to see trees be cut down. They want to see trees do what trees should do, and fig trees should produce fruit. And so I think that, that that's a good way to think about that. So when I or someone else tells it to you straight, like Jesus did here, that repent or face destruction, then the reason that's being done is because it's important, and we should pay attention to it. And we're going to take a break in just a moment, and, and we should think about that importance of, of that idea of repent or face destruction. We're going to talk about some other things in a little bit more when we come back, including the fear of the Lord, and follow up on some other things we've done earlier. So take a breath. We'll be back in just a moment. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. back. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we're delighted to bring you this program, and we hope it helps you. We've been talking about faith for quite a while now here, and we believe faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to help you have faith. We want to help you develop that kind of confidence in God. Now, I know you know, I think we all understand that faith is not limited to that idea that idea of absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. But I have observed, and I understand that in many ways, this idea of developing confidence in God really is an important part of faith. And we need to cultivate that, and we need to strengthen that so that we can have the kind of confidence in God that He wants us to have, so that we can trust Him the way we need to. And so we are looking at the scriptures from time to time and uh, asking ourselves important questions, and then we ask ourselves, how does that help us have confidence in God? And today we've been looking at a very straightforward passage from Luke chapter 9, where Jesus gives us unequivocal statements about what what he expects and and about what life is going on. And, And just think about this. Jesus says straight up, we talked about this, Jesus says straight up, repent or die. Did you think about that? Repent or die. He doesn't give any qualifications to that. He doesn't say, well, sort of repent. Uh, Maybe I'll think about it a little bit. No, he says repent or die. And so we're trying to understand that parable that's related to that statement in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. We've been talking about the parable and and what it means and some of the implications. And we want to pick that up again, because it's a parable about a tree that didn't produce fruit, and that the owner of the vineyard wanted to cut down because it hadn't produced fruit. And so we're trying to understand now, what are the elements of the parable, and what do they represent? And sometimes that helps us interpret what is going on in a parable, and in this case it does. There are limitations to doing this, but nonetheless, we're going to give it a try. And and we're going to realize that the fig tree really represents people, you and I, people like us, the people that listen to the parable and us. Fig tree is us, people. And the fruit that the fig tree was expected to produce are the actions of the people. We're supposed to live lives that demonstrate the fruit that we have repented, that we have changed. And so the fig tree and the fruit is pretty clear that it's people and it's the actions that that are involved in that. I also think it's pretty clear, and there are some people who question this as they look at that, but I think it's pretty clear that the owner of the vineyard is God himself. Because God comes, he's the owner of the people. We are his. We aren't our own. We are his. And the owner comes looking for fruit in the lives of the people, looking for fruit on the fig tree, and says, cut it down, because there was no fruit. That's pretty straightforward, very consistent with what Jesus said in the introductory part, verses one through five, 
and where he said repeatedly, repent or die. Now, it's, all, it's a little bit less clear, but I think there are some, some really good parallels that I think it helps us understand. But it's a little bit less clear who the gardener connects to or relates to. Now, I think you can make a real good case that the gardener in this case represents Jesus, although it's interesting that Jesus never says that he's the gardener. He doesn't identify any of the players in the parable. He just tells the parable. But it seems pretty clear that Jesus represents or, or is playing the part of the gardener because he went about his life trying to persuade people to repent and turn to God. And he cared about the people and he wanted them to, to get it right. And so Jesus is likely one of the representations of the gardener. I think it's also very much possible that, that pastors and teachers, maybe Sunday school teachers, anyone who has the care of souls is represented by the gardener or the gardener represents them. Now, again, this is a less certain interpretation, but I think it fits the story. And I think it fits the idea because it's pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers and other people in the church that care about people, maybe evangelists that care about people and want them to repent and turn to God so that they don't face destruction. And so they do the things that the gardener is described as doing in the parable. So I think that that makes sense. So here we have a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit. We have people that are represented by that fig tree. We have an absence of fruit by those people. We have an owner that is intent on judgment of the fig tree. And we have a gardener who is pleading for a little more time so the tree might possibly produce fruit. So let's look at that idea that the tree might possibly produce fruit. There are mention in the parable of, of three years in one instance and instance in one year in another. It's a little challenging to understand what's going on here, but not too much. Now, one of the things that helps us as we understand the years and its relationship to fig trees is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25. And those verses teach us some important things about trees that the people were to plant when they entered the promised land. So let me read those verses from the Christian Standard Bible. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, you are to consider the fruit forbidden. It will be forbidden to you for three years. It is not to be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit is to be consecrated as a praise offering to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, its yield will increase for you. I am the Lord, your God. So God gives them specific, clear instructions about how they're to handle a tree that they plant for food. Years one through three, the fruit is forbidden. Absolutely cannot eat anything because God said, don't eat it for three years. In the fourth year, God says in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25, in the fourth year, he says that fruit is consecrated to the Lord. So the fourth year fruit is the Lord's. After that, in the fifth year and in the following years, you may eat the fruit. So four years, whatever fruit is produced, can't eat it for the first three. The fourth year is consecrated to God. Finally, in the fifth year, the fruit is yours and you may benefit from it. Now, we don't know if the owner of the vineyard, because it doesn't say in the story, followed this pattern or not. If he did, 
then the three years he refers to would be years five, six, and seven, because that would have been the time, the window of opportunity when it first presented itself for him to get fruit from the tree. We don't know that, but given the information we have, given the perspective from Leviticus, no matter how long it had been, we know it had been at least three years. And so in some respects, and maybe in a lot of respects, the age of the tree is irrelevant because three years was plenty long enough to produce fruit, plenty of time, no question about it. And so we can draw a couple of conclusions from that three years, or if it was seven years, we can draw the conclusion that the fig tree was a complete failure at producing fruit. There was just no fruit. It utterly failed to produce fruit, complete failure. And so we understand the owner's aggravation, the owner's determination to cut it down. It was a, it was a failure. The tree was a failure. It just didn't produce fruit. So that's one thing. The second thing is because it had been three years and maybe more, again, we're not sure, it was by all appearances completely hopeless that it would ever produce fruit, 100% that it would ever produce fruit. So when the owner says cut it down, he's not doing it capriciously. He's doing it because it hadn't produced and he had no indication that it would ever produce. So we should make sure we understand that when God pronounces judgment, it's not because he's being capricious or difficult or delighting in doing that. It's because he's given enough time and there's been the opportunity to repent, but the tree did not change its ways and produce fruit. Well, then we might ask, well, what about the one year? What about the idea that the tree was given one last opportunity to avoid judgment? What's the going on with the one year? Is there any significance to that? Well, we don't know if there's significance to the one year, except perhaps the growing season. But we do know this, that in that day and time, the Jewish teachers all agreed that God could suspend judgment in response to repentance. And of course, that's what Jesus was saying earlier on. If you don't repent, you will die. So he was urging repentance. And so the repentance would result in God suspending judgment. And that was entirely consistent with what they understood in those days, that they could be delivered from judgment by repenting, by changing, by making a U-turn in their lives, by doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And so that, that's not a surprise, and that part of the story is absolutely clear, that there is time for repentance, and by you hearing what Jesus is saying today, it's an indication that you have had time, but now is the time for repentance. That's very important, very important for us to understand that. Now, you might also ask, what made the gardener think there was any possibility of fruit? I mean, he could have obviously seen he was there. He knew it had been three years, at least maybe seven. No fruit. He wasn't blind to that. Why would he think there's any possibility? Well, there's no specific statement there. Perhaps we could, we could understand that a gardener would care about the plants and would be reluctant to cut one down because a gardener would try to succeed by 
helping the plant succeed. And so the plant's success would be the gardener's success. So love for the plants would have been the motivation for the gardener to say, let me save the tree. In the same way, love for people would be the reason that Jesus or pastors or teachers or other people would urge someone to repent because they realized that they needed to. Now, maybe the gardener recognized that if he gave attention to the tree that he planted, that that was planted there, he planned to provide certain attention. Maybe he believed that that would revive the tree. Maybe those of us who are responsible for telling people the truth need to remember that, that, that there is always hope. And if we work a little harder or craft a little better explanation or, or help answer people's questions that, that we give that kind of attention, maybe there is a chance that they'll, that they'll, that they'll repent. In other words, the gardener did all that he could to save the tree. And I suppose it's a message to all of us that we should do all that we can to save the people around us from destruction and to urge them to repent, to, to admonish them to repent. You see, there is time to repent. And just as the Jewish leaders believed that God would suspend judgment, there's a story in the Bible that's very clear about that, that would help us. So when we're encouraged to do all that we can to encourage repentance, we can remember Jonah. Here's a guy who did all that he could to discourage repentance. Well, you remember the story, and, and this is a very short explanation of that story, but you remember God said to Jonah, there's people over in Nineveh that are really bad people, and they need to hear the message that, that I have for them so that they can change their lives, so that they can repent and, and avoid destruction, because if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. Well, Jonah knew about the people of Nineveh. He didn't like them very much. He knew how bad they were. They were brutal, vicious people. They had created, uh, committed all kinds of atrocities. They, they were not people that Jonah wanted to see saved. Jonah probably thought, and I don't know that it says this in, in the story of Jonah, but certainly it's implied by Jonah's behavior. Jonah would have been just as happy for God to take them out. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to have the chance to repent. So what's Jonah do? He gets on a boat and heads in the opposite direction from Nineveh. He says, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going over there. And away he goes. Well, God interrupts his trip with the storm and nearly drowns the whole boat. And finally, Jonah says, it's me. God's after me. Throw me overboard. You'll be okay. They do. They were. Jonah wasn't so much okay. He was swallowed by a big fish. We sometimes say a whale. Spent three days in that fish. Finally, the fish got sick of him, spit him up. And Jonah cleaned himself up, went on his way to Nineveh. Interestingly enough, when he gets to Nineveh and he preaches God's message, some people have said it was the most effective sermon ever preached because as the story is told, it seems all but immediately or perhaps immediately, the people of Nineveh hear the word of the Lord and they repent before God and God hears their cries for forgiveness, and God suspends judgment, and he doesn't crush them. Well, not in Jonah. <laughs> Jonah, he's not happy about that at all. Here he was, such an effective evangelist. Here he sees God delivering people from destruction, and Jonah is just mad as could be. He, he'd wanted, I guess he wanted to see God just take him out. And God says, no, not going to take them out. They've repented. So you see, that's the point that we need to understand from the one year that, that apparently God has given you 
the opportunity to repent, because here you are. God has given you one last chance to avoid judgment. He's not saying you won't face judgment. He's saying that you will if you don't repent. But he's admonishing you and saying, please, change your life. Do a U-turn in life. Change your attitudes, your thoughts. Change your behaviors so you follow Jesus. And remember, Jesus' invitation is to repent, change your life, and give allegiance to Jesus. Now, some people say, well, why do you talk about give allegiance? I thought the Bible said believe. Yes, the Bible uses the word believe, but generally when the New Testament uses the word believe, allegiance is a better, better translation for what the text means. You see, we know from the scriptures that, that the demons believe Jesus is real and they believe in him. They believe there is someone named Jesus who is the son of God. They don't have any trouble believing that truthfulness, but you and I know they haven't pledged allegiance to Jesus. They haven't given themselves to Jesus. They haven't turned their lives around. They haven't repented and now are faithfully following Jesus. So when I say give allegiance to Jesus, I mean it's the decision to begin to do what Jesus calls us to do. So repentance is turning our lives around. It represents being sorry for the way we've gone. And it's a time for us now to give allegiance to Jesus and produce in our lives the fruit of repentance so that we can now do the things that God calls us to do and be the people God calls us to be. So just as Jonah said to the people of Nineveh, God says to us, it's not how bad you are or have been. It's what you do about it now that matters. God admonishes us, don't make excuses. Don't, don't try to say, well, it's too late for me. God is saying, no, it's not. He's saying it's what matters. What matters is what you do now. What matters is what you do now. So repent, produce fruit that demonstrates that repentance and that benefits God, the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the fig tree. And it's also absolutely essential that we remember that the story of Jonah is good news that the people repented, but it's absolutely essential that we not miss Jesus' point early on that judgment is certain for people who refuse to repent and produce the fruit of repentance, the, the fruit that demonstrates they are faithful followers of Jesus. So that judgment is certain, nothing changes about that. And so that reminds us that the Ninevites experienced the fear of God and it caused them to change. And in the previous two weeks, we've talked about the fear of God and, and trying to have a better understanding of what fear should be in our lives and what it shouldn't be. And I've referenced the book that Michael Horton wrote called Recovering Our Sanity. It has a subtitle, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. Michael Horton wrote this very helpful book, and I like it a lot. It has a lot of really good ideas. And what he's really admonishing us to do is to fear God instead of fearing all the things that people seem to be fearing these days. We've lived through a period of time when people were, quite frankly, afraid of too many things. They lived their lives in fear. And Michael Horton in the book says that that the fear of God drives out the fear of everything else. And so he wants us to have a proper fear of God. Same way the people of Nineveh had a proper fear of God, the same way Jesus wants us to fear destruction. And so Michael Horton says, if we have the right fear of God, we won't be afraid of all these other things. 
Or he says it another way in the book. He says the antidote to our fears is the fear of God. In chapter three, he explains on some of that and gives some illustrations of, of how the fear of God works in the life of people and how in one particular case that the fear of God took a little developing because Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it at first. But he starts the chapter by asking a very important question, why do we fear God? And then he gives the very obvious answer that I've paraphrased a little bit. He says, because he's God, that's why we fear him. Well, he goes on to explain that God is the source of all that's good and true and beautiful. And so why wouldn't we fear him? But he also goes, goes on to explain that, that we need to understand that one day God will sit on the throne and he will pronounce judgment on all creation, on all of us. And so the story of Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit of an illustration of that as well, of how one guy really got it terribly wrong, but finally got it right. Nebuchadnezzar was used by God, and God gave Nebuchadnezzar Jerusalem when he went there to besiege it. He didn't win the battle. God gave him to him. And so part of all of that is he took people captive back to Babylon. They went into exile. That was part of God's correction for the people. Among them was Daniel and some other Hebrew young men who served in the royal court. And they earned a spot by their diligence and their study and learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. And yet Nebuchadnezzar never really got what he needed to get in spite of Daniel's good behavior, good performance in the court, how Daniel interpreted a dream that was essential for Nebuchadnezzar to have interpreted. Nebuchadnezzar didn't really get it. He thought a lot of himself and of his might and of what he had accomplished. In fact, he, he set up a, a big idol and he expected everybody to bow down to that idol. When they played the music, bow down to the idol. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, nope, not going to bow down. The king dragged them in and said, didn't you understand? I can give you another chance. And they said, yeah, we understand. And yeah, you can throw us in the fiery furnace as you have threatened, but we're not going to bow down. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, our God can deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. What were they demonstrating? They were demonstrating the fear of God. They feared God more than Nebuchadnezzar. They feared God more than the fiery furnace. And you know the story. The king had them thrown in. The soldiers that threw them in died, but they went walking around in the furnace just fine. Not a single hair on their head was harmed. Not only that, but there was a fourth person in there that Nebuchadnezzar said looked like God. Well, finally, he called them out, realized that God had delivered them. And Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson that God is God, and he wasn't. Well, he sort of learned it, but he didn't learn it for good because he still thought a lot about himself. And he had another dream that Daniel reluctantly interpreted. And the dream that Daniel relayed to the king, the meaning of the dream was that the king was going to face judgment because the king thought a lot about himself. And sure enough, about 12 months after the dream was interpreted, Nebuchadnezzar was walking around the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And in verse 30 of chapter four of the book of Daniel, we read this. Nebuchadnezzar says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes.
Nebuchadnezzar experienced that judgment, lived for a period of time away from people and was driven out just as God said. Later, his sanity returned and he was restored when he acknowledged God and he robustly proclaimed that God was God. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was given the opportunity to repent. It doesn't use that language exactly in Daniel, but that's what Jesus meant. That's what the Bible talks about. That's what God asks us to do, to be so convinced that God is God, to have such awe and respect, to have the fear of God, to realize God is God and we are not, that we repent, we change our lives, we give allegiance to Jesus because God is God. And what better choice is there than to follow him? You see, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the straight up hard truth that some people characterize as turn or burn, that Jesus said is repent or die. And that's the invitation that God gives all of us. It's not about how bad we have been or are. It's not anything to do with what was or is. It matters that we repent. It's what you do now that matters. So I admonish you, repent, follow Jesus, give allegiance to him, find life as he means for you to live it. And you will have life like you cannot imagine because you will be free of the worry of judgment because you'll have faith and absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We'll talk again next week.